Welcome to a Pentecast episode number 150 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I am Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Jesse. Tony. This is 150th episode, isn't it? A big happy 150 to you, brother. Yes. I feel like we've reached the mature age of podcasters. This is that age, I, 150? Yeah, I feel like three years of podcasting. Like, I don't feel like we've been podcasting for three years, to be honest with you. So that's what's ironic about this, is, is when you tally up all the episodes, the 150 sounds great, but when you're just like... We're three years old. Yeah. That's a different level of maturity. Yeah, it's also not quite three years. It's like 156 is three years of yes. podcasting. But Good math right there. Congratulations making it to episode 150, which is, I, I, I mean, I'm not trying to brag on us, even though it sounds like it is, but it's actually pretty significant in the world of podcasting to make it as far as we have. Um, humble brag. Humble. I don't know if it's even a humble brag, but anyway... I don't know where that's going, but it is what it is. Well, let's kick off with some affirmations and denials on this 150th episode. Just like every other special episode that we have, it's going to be exactly the same as every other episode. (laughs) It's because we're Scottish Puritans at heart. Regulative principle of podcasting, in effect. Yeah, so I'll kick it off here with some affirmations. So I'm affirming something simple that I don't think a lot of people do, but I found a lot of spiritual benefit from it. I love it. um, So I produce the sermon audio for our church's podcast feed, um, and that gives me the opportunity to listen to my pastor's sermon, usually at least once more, but most of the time twice more, uh, beyond when I'm hearing it live on the Lord's Day. And so I'm just encouraging you and I'm affirming uh, that our audience takes some time to listen to their pastor's sermon a second time if uh, if they have access to the audio podcast. And if you don't have access to the audio podcast, because your church doesn't make one, then I would be more than happy to help you get that set up. So if you want to email me, I can get you some pointers on how to do that. But I've just found it really spiritually enriching to hear it a, a second or a third time, because there's always things you hear that you um, you didn't pick up on the first time, or after you've been chewing on it a little bit on the Lord's Day, you've been reflecting on the sermon, you listen to it again, and it kind of hits you in a different way. So just take some time. Um, if you listen at a higher speed, like most people do when they're listening to podcasts, uh, it's quick. It's usually edifying um, and it's helpful. And your pastor, I'm sure, would be more than happy to hear that you're mulling over his sermon uh, more than once. Um, There's a lot of preparation and prayer that goes into producing a sermon or creating a sermon. So uh, the more that you can get out of it and the more that you can sort of uh, mull over to meditate on it, I'm sure that would encourage your pastor as well. That's a really good recommendation. That's the kind of affirmation I've come to expect after 150 episodes. <laughs> well, how long have we been doing affirmations and denials? Not quite 150, but yeah. for a while now. For I think. a while now. What do you got? So this week I'm affirming with just a single word in English because I came across this word and I love it and I want everybody to use it. So the word is rip snorter. Rip snorter? Rip snorter. So let me just ask you, put you on the spot. What do you think that word might mean? Just, uh, I'd say like something that's really funny. 
Yeah, that's actually not too far off. So it's a noun. It means actually something extraordinary. So I think this has wonderful theological implications. Like I would love for people to talk about the fact that God's love and mercy is a rip snorter because it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. It sounds like that it, might be a little disrespectful, but I'm sure it's not. So that's the thing is this, that's what makes this somewhat ironic is it sounds like just because the word like that has like an onomatopoeia esque type feel to it where you want it to be something because of just how crazy it sounds. But yeah, this is actually a word going back like several centuries, like mid 19th century at least, but that refers to something that is like really grand. In fact, a synonym apparently is humdinger, yeah. which also is just a really good word. That's funny. Uh, and the reason why I'm familiar with the word humdinger is this is like a fun little game we can play with our listeners. So where I went to school for my undergraduate education, they had this really special meal and it was usually served on the Lord's day and it was humdinger chicken. Nice. So if you're familiar with this institution, you know exactly where I went to school, but I just love that this is a word. So I've been using rip snorter and I've been using it in theological ways and just blowing people's minds because it sounds like something that is uh, somewhat pejorative, but it's actually a word that means of great value, something that is absolutely extraordinary because like the word awesome has been overused and it's not no longer like something that actually inspires on you. So I'm saying let's bring rip snorter into this and make it big. I think we need to bring back some of these other uh, synonyms as well. So according to MiriamWebster.com, we also have Crackajack. <laughs> uh, let's see. Humdinger. Jim Dandy. Lollapalooza. Uh, Pippin uh, Ripper. Yes. Sock Dolliger. I don't know oh, what that is. Sock Dolliger. That's so good. Yeah. So this episode is going to be a Crackajack. Oh, it's for sure going to be like straight Crackajack. Straight up Crackajack. I I'm glad you looked that up because my uh, kind of complimentary affirmation for this week is the Oxford English Dictionary app for your phone is really stellar. Is it? If you, you can get it for free to get the full version without ads and like you can get the pronunciations and all that stuff, which is super fun, honestly. It's $10 retail, but if you, what I found is if you download it and hang it on to it for long enough, the free version, they'll just send you something that's like, all right, we give in. How about five bucks? <laughs> it's totally worth the $10, but at five bucks, it's totally worth the value. So I think actually everybody should have a dictionary on their phone because it's just a great tool and it's a great way to continue to get well-versed with language. And when you come across, if you're readers like you and I are, and you come across this word that maybe is a little bit archaic, like rip snorter. You can look it up real quick, and then you have this fun new term to use. So the OED app is super awesome. Sorry, it's a rip snorter. You should definitely go and check that out. I'd also like to say that a near antonym of rip snorter is just disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> I was really hoping for some really awesome ways to say not exciting or not disappointment. So the antonyms of rip snorter are definitely disappointment. Uh, that's great. Oh Something that you won't find on this cast. There's nothing here that you'll be disappointed with. So to that end, maybe you are disappointed with something. What is your denial for this week? I'm very disappointed in something, Jesse. I have to be honest. So, um, well, let's hear you it. You know me. I'm a huge fan of the Marvel comics, uh, particularly the movies. I like comics, but I like the Marvel Cinematic Universe a lot. And my favorite character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and in Marvel as a whole is Spider-Man. 
And over the last week, uh, we found out that Marvel uh, tried to get a little greedy with their deal with Sony, and Sony took their ball and went home. So there will be no more, most likely, Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which makes me immensely sad. So They can just do that? Yeah, it, it's complicated. You should ask Conrad about this sometime. He'll he'll tell you all about it. But Or you could ask Heath. More or less, uh, way back in the day, Marvel was going bankrupt, and so they started selling off a lot of their uh, characters and stuff, movie rights to things. And so they sold Spider-Man and the related characters to Sony. And so Sony owns the right to Spider-Man and all the related characters. And so a couple of years ago, Marvel approached Sony, and the deal was that... Marvel could use Spider-Man in Marvel movies, so like Captain America, Civil War, or the Avengers movies. Um, he, they could use Spider-Man in those movies, and Sony wouldn't get any of the, mo- the money for that. But the flip side, what Sony got out of the deal was that Marvel's uh, production team and their writers and their directors, the people who are making the Marvel movies so great, and their kind of their overall uh, vision, their overall like creative visionary, Kevin Feige, who kind of orchestrates the whole thing, he would consult on the Spider-Man movies. And so each side basically got some help making their movies. um, And they got a a small portion of what's called first, I think it's called like first dollars, but basically they get a tiny portion of like all the sales from the first day of uh, the movie. And so Sony went, uh, uh, Marvel went to Sony and said, we want Spider-Man but we want 50-50 of all of the revenue that's generated. Um, and they were going to, I think they were going to give 50-50 of their revenue back. And Sony said, nope, we're not into that. So now there's no more Marvel, there's no more Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Wah, wah, wow. Wah. That's, that's actually a sad story because, so as you know, actually pre-recommendation, you've been doing this excellent amount of coaching in the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe for my wife. Yes. So she wanted to be able to see what was the most recent movie that came out? Endgame. Uh, well, the most recent Spider-Man movie was called Far From Home. But Endgame is the, the most recent big Avengers movie. Right. So she wanted to see this, but she recognized that there were all these prerequisites. So she asked you, you graciously provided like this whole outline and this whole order. So she's been working through that. And so somewhat by extension, I've been seeing some of this stuff and just trying to understand what the heck is going on. Because yeah. there, there's like a lot of amazing storylines. And so that in some ways makes me sad because I know that so many people love these stories and there, there is a legacy here. Yeah. So it's a little bit, I guess it's unnerving to know that there might not be any future or forthcoming releases that would involve him. The most recent one I watched with her or portion of it was with um, that dude Thor. He's the guy with the glove thing, right? No, 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 not Thor. Sorry. This is embarrassing. <laughs> wow. People are screaming. Thanos? People are screaming right now. Thanos? Uh, Yes, Thanos. See, start with a TH. <laughs> People are absolutely just yelling and destroying their listening devices. So, um, with the glove thing and like the jewels, and I will say there was a lot of like theological ties for me because the, almost the entire time I was thinking, wow, like God has this kind of power. Like in reality, he's the only one that has this. Right. And I was especially unnerved by the stone that let him change reality. Yeah. That just seems like crazy and completely unfair. Yeah. Except he can only change it like a little bit. Like in the co- in like the comics, is. in the comics, he like really, really changes reality. But in the in the um, movies, it seems like he changes it, but it's almost like a perception thing. Because as soon as he like goes somewhere else, 
it, like it's not the same anymore. Yes, like it goes, it away. goes away, which is not in the comics. Like right now, I'm reading through. So the the Infinity Stones and the Infinity Gauntlet is like a running like a running uh, deus ex machina in the comics. Like every time something needs to happen, they appeal to the stones. But in the most recent version of like the Infinity War reiteration, um, one of the characters like takes all of reality and actually folds it over on itself. So, so she wants to reduce the life in the universe by half two, but instead of eliminating half the life, what she does is she combines 50% 50% of the universe with the other 50% of the universe. So you get these weird fusion characters that are like a mixture of Doctor Strange and Captain America, or there's a combination that's Thor and Iron Man. It's really interesting. There's also a character called Throg that is a frog version of Thor that's just around. <laughs> so he's pretty what? awesome. His name is Throg. Uh, see, this is... I will be the first to admit I'm totally a noob with this. So yeah. it's been fun for me to go through. It's actually what's been hilarious is my wife who usually is the one that is often curious and asks questions about what's happening in the movie. Now I'm the roles have been reversed. So like, I'm like, who is this dude? And she'd be like, Oh, well you need to have seen this movie. Yeah. And she explains like the backstory to me. And then usually I'm like, what has, what have you become? Who <laughs> are we anymore? I know she's, Do- she's really branching out. She's watching Marvel movies. She's drinking beer. She's going to baseball games. Yeah, it's, it's true. So she's been enjoying those and me, like I said, by somewhat by extension, I have been impressed with the storylines. It's very interesting. And I'm trying, and I will say what I've been surprised about with those movies is there's a lot more levity in comedic portions than yeah. I thought. Like the, the, um, I'm just, I hate to even talk more about this because I'm just going to get stuff wrong because I don't <laughs> understand it completely, but the raccoon yeah, thing rocket. in... Okay, is hilarious. Yeah. And like the way that people like misinterpret who he is and what he is is also funny. Yeah. Yeah, he um he's an interesting character. I mean, really the the Marvel comics, I could nerd out about this all day long. I should just Heath and Conrad and I should just get on the mics and do like a 5-hour episode on this. For sure. But uh, the brilliant thing about the Marvel comic movies is that they're actually genre based movies taking place in a comic universe. So like the Captain America movies, the first one is like a like a uh, like a World War Two, like war movie. But then the second and third one are really like spy thrillers. So they, they have like almost like a born conspiracy feel to them. Um, nice. The most recent Spider-Man is like a Euro trip. Uh, like a teen trip movie. And like the first one was like a coming of age, like teen romance movie. The most recent Thor was kind of uh, like a buddy road trip comedy. The Ant-Man movies are kind of like, uh, like a heist movie. So they got some of the same elements as like the ocean series. So the movies are so successful because they appeal to everybody because everybody has a genre of movie they like. So you can go to these movies and appreciate them even if you don't like comics but then through these different genre movies they've interwoven these this this ongoing storyline into this like 23 movie saga and that's really unprecedented even star wars is not 23 movies long i mean you might have a long series that's like seven or eight movies like harry potter but this is a 23 movie uh like 
it's like a epic saga. There's really no other word for it. So it really is something unique that they've done. And it's going to be interesting to see what they do now that this first Infinity Saga is over, how they go into these next kind of the next stage, because there's a lot of question marks as to who the next like big bad guy that they're going to drive to is. So it's interesting, but it's sad to me that Spider-Man will probably have more Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland, who played the Spider-Man in these most recent ones. But they have to be abstracted now from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So Tom Holland's Spider-Man has been built up as sort of like the fault, like he's a he's a um, like a protege of Iron Man. So his his right. whole orbit of characters is integrated with Iron Man. So even like Nick Fury and Happy Hogan, like these characters that are are mostly Iron Man characters they're just suddenly going to disappear out of Tom Holland's Spider-Man. There's no way they can be part of it anymore. Um, and so it's going to be really interesting to see what they do because there's so much in the Marvel universe that this character has interacted with that has really developed his character and who he is that all of a sudden they're no longer going to be able to make any references to. So I'm actually still pretty sure that eventually Marvel and Sony will get back at the table and will work something out. I really hope they do. Um, but it's it's sad to think about a, a Marvel Cinematic Universe without Spider-Man, and it's sad to think about a Spider-Man universe without the Marvel Cinematic characters either. And and I can begin to share some of that sadness. Yes. I don't understand it completely, but I can begin to share yes. it. Yes. Now that we've nerd nerd weeped out here, nerd weep. I made that up just now. <laughs> it, was, it was great. I you, you had me at nerd weep. You'd, so I was just I, obviously you could tell I was with bated breath waiting for what was coming. You after think that. after 149 episodes that we'd be able to figure out some of this like basic podcasting skills like transitions and nope, nothing just the same. Yep, just slam it right into gear. Nerd weep. Well let. Let me at least give you my denial real quick. All right, then, let's do it. Because my, mine is kind of nerdy, but not in the same way. So I love technology. You love technology. What a, what a day and age to be alive, right? All this stuff we get to use. Yeah. And, and so like, I'm still affirming the technology. We have this, which has been for us a grand experiment. We have this Amazon Echo device. It, it is super fun. I affirm that part. But recently, I, one of the things I love to use this thing for is as many people will have them know, you can basically like the app equivalent on the echo devices is something called a skill. And you can load all these amazing skills that people have developed. And some of the best skills are the ones for like sound effects for like when you're going to sleep. So one of them is called ambient noise. And for whatever reason this week, when I tried to engage it from bed and I said, Oh, like open ambient noise to Alexa. And all of a sudden, like it's quiet for a second. She's just like, I added noise to your shopping list. And I was like, what? <laughs> what, what, is even, what is that? And I don't want you to order that. I don't know what that is. So like, I got up and looked online so because I, I can see, of course, in my list what she's added. And she added noise. But when I click on it, like there's nothing there. It was just freaky. It was just like, you have noise on your shopping list. <laughs> and there's no actual product. <laughs> it's just noise. So um, even with all this great technology, still all the time, this kind of funny stuff happens. And I think what's weird is that I always get frustrated, actually, in a strange, like, inappropriate, unmeasured way. I'm always like, this is so frustrating that you just can't understand me. And this makes my wife, like, laugh until she almost wets her pants. <laughs> because when the device does not understand me or when it does something like that, she, she seriously cannot contain herself. So I guess I'm denying against the fact that is is we get this amazing technology yet still it's the simple things 
And for some reason this week, Alexa decided to add noise to my shopping list. And it took me a bit of time to get it off the list. That's hilarious. That reminds me one time I was in riding in the car uh, with my wife, Ashley, and your mother. And we were on the way. I don't remember where we were coming from, but the plan was to order a pizza on the way home. <laughs> And I'm sure you've heard this story. Yeah, and she, story. she, you know, she has um, a Bluetooth connection to her car. And so she hits the button and she says, call Enfield House of Pizza. And then out of nowhere, it goes, calling Donna. <laughs> like, totally different. <laughs> totally different. Not even close. Not, not even in the ballpark of what she said. And it was hilarious because oh. she was like, no, 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 no. It was, it was great. <laughs> Why is this stuff endlessly funny? It's it's like the mistakes that happen because yeah. of just mishearing or misunderstanding are always going to be hilarious. And when we throw technology <laughs> into that mix, it just gets even better. Because it's, it's funny enough when you say something and somebody misunderstands what you said. Like yeah. another story to that effect in our family, as you know, is one time when my family was visiting my grandmother, my father went out into his father's garage and he was getting some tools that he wanted to take back <laughs> with him because my grandmother had offered it. And so when he came back in, um, my mother and my wife were sitting at the kitchen table and they said something like, what did you find? And whatever came out of his mouth, what they both independently heard was they asked, what did you find? They heard him say shrimp knickers. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I guess what he literally, literally said was like little nippers, like a little something to cut or nip wire. And so that's what he says he said. But they independently both said, did you say shrimp knickers? Yeah. So like now that's become like the big phrase. So we already got like this phrase or this phrase. We already got like this theme, I think, in this episode of like words and usage and which is probably pretty good since what we're talking today about is we're back into Joel Beakey's reform preaching book. And I like the chapter that we're in, which is chapter eight, because it's about the Puritans. Yes. And the Puritans were are kind of almost renowned and recognized for what they might, we might call like this golden age of preaching from like the mid 16th century to like the late 17th century. And part of that comes from like turn of phrase. So I think it's kind of appropriate that we inadvertently started in this kind of way, Yeah. but this is a great chapter. And I kind of wanted to start out with this idea that we often quote the Puritans or they're often upheld as this kind of golden age. Some of that I think is time and scholarship, but before we even get into kind of like what they spoke about, what they kind of emphasize in terms of their preaching, how do you understand this phrase of like them being in the golden age? Why do we always go back to using that phrase when we talk about the Puritans? Well, just real quick before we answer that question, I want to share with you the number one reason why Android is superior to iPhone. Are you ready for this? <laughs> I hope you can hear okay. this. Okay. Okay, Google. Go. What is the chief end of man? According to Wikipedia, a man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. <laughs> so uh, that just seemed like a good transition to me was Puritans, first question of this catechism, Google. Um, as far as the golden age of preaching question goes, um, the Puritans in England, uh, the English Puritans, the original Puritans, um, they're they're unique in a sense, not not utterly unique, but the success of their program of preaching is unrivaled really anywhere else in history. So right. we know we know that in Geneva, Calvin was an excellent preacher. He was a proliferous preacher. Um, he preached, you know, 
multiple times a week. And the preaching in Geneva was a major part of the religious reform in Geneva. But even in Geneva, there was a lot of reform that centered around liturgy, ecclesiology, um, the discipline of the church, the the way that pastors were pastors again, instead of just speakers or, you know, kind of hucksters in the Roman Catholic church. Um, similarly, in the, the Lutheran areas, um, there was much more in the area of reform of the, the form and the function of the church. But in England, after the Church of England formed, um, there was these Puritans who wanted to reform the, the, uh, the Church of England in a more Protestant reform direction. And they went about it simply by engaging the act of preaching in a much more focused and diligent way. And so for, for Calvin, yes, the word was central, but his was a theological reform based on the study of the scripture. So he implemented practical things uh, with theological groundings based on his study of scripture. Part of that was his reform in preaching. But in England, it really was more just straight up preaching that changed uh, changed the average person. And Dr. Beakey makes the point in the chapter that although their, their reform was not particularly uh, successful in reference to reforming the organization or the institution of the church in England, it was extremely effective in uh, reforming and engaging the people of England to reform in a more Protestant direction, right. which at the end of the day ended up being something that drove England as a whole further towards a reformed doctrine, um, even despite some of the setbacks that they had with all the various um, kings and queens and different things that were going on, the civil wars and things like that. Um, so it really is an important thing for us to recognize with the Puritans that when we say preaching is of the utmost importance to the to the Puritans, it, it really could not be overstated how important preaching was. It was the foundation of everything. It was everything they were trying to do happened through preaching. The, the, um, the revitalization of Christian education was because of a focus on preaching. The revitalization right. of the average person's theological knowledge was accomplished through preaching. Even things like training ministers talks about these prophesyings they did. And we're not talking about like a weird Bethel Redding thing. It was these prophesyings where they would literally just get together and, and they would just preach and then they would critique each other's sermons. So it really can't right. be overemphasized how important preaching was. That's exactly <laughs> right. What's what I noticed that really came out of this chapter was we've already spoken about so many of the men that we've already covered through Dr. Beakey's writing had this primacy of preaching but what I think is, like you said, not necessarily unique, but definitely special right. is the sense that for the Puritans, they made the center of gravity of worship and devotion preaching. And so there was this profound sense that God builds his church primarily through the instrument of preaching. And that is something that I think is a little bit in distinction to what we see in modern evangelicalism. Because when you listen to preaching today, just on average, on the whole— what I think you're hearing that you can reverse engineer from what be, what is being spoken is that preaching is more about entertaining. It's more about trying to engage. It's more about trying to fill a space with something that's interesting and stimulating right. and makes you want to come back and give your devotion at least to that activity. That's very different than what the Puritans had in mind. Yeah. And so I like that he, t he speaks about the reasons then for why they preached like this. Like, what was it that drove them to this? Because where, wherever you place your weight... You're going to make that thing 
have the primacy in your devotion and expression, in your theology and your worship toward God. And so because that was for them the center, then it makes sense that this preaching was very precise. It was very meticulous. It was invested in. They waded into these waters deep. Their preparation was strong and rich. And so I think that's why we always come back to them, why we can pick up the transcribed sermons that they preached and still be impacted by them today because it's not about pure scholarship. And he makes that point elsewhere in the chapter that this wasn't just about where they were just wicked, smart dudes. And so because of that, they have some type of advantage historically and otherwise. What he's saying is anybody could in a sense preach like this. It's because of their devotion to not just the craft of preaching, but to its essential role and bringing forward the kingdom of God. This is why they preach like this. This is why it was so rich. Right. So he gives like three reasons for the preaching that they gave. And, and we should talk about this real quick because I think that these provide some kind of wonderful fence posts and corral, so to speak, for what preaching should look like in terms of the boundaries that should be around it. The first he says is for God's sake. The second is for man's sake. And then the last is for the minister's sake. So this idea that like God's honor is at stake and he does not think lightly of a minister's thoughts replacing his own. That's a big, big statement. And I love that, right? Yeah. Like that, that is like to have a pastor that thinks like that. How great is that? Yeah. And you know, this is something that, um, you know, there are, there are threads and seeds of theology that are happening all across uh, the British Isles in the, the, the English area. And so I was actually reading in the Scots Confession this morning. Um, and one of the things that they talk about is how, you know, even in um, the Reformation, there was still this um, there was still this danger or this tendency to elevate the church above the word of God. Um, so right. I actually am just going to read chapter 19. It's real short of the Scots Confession. It says, we believe and confess uh, the scriptures of God sufficient to instruct and make the man of God perfect. So do we affirm and avow the authority of the same to be of God and neither to depend on men or angels. We affirm therefore that such as allege the scripture to have no authority, but that which is received from the Kirk to be blasphemous against God and injurious to the true church, which always hears and obeys the voice of her own spouse and pastor, but takes not upon her to be mistress over the same. And so what that's saying is, um, the church always has to recognize that the scriptures are the word of God. And because it's the word of God, it carries the authority of God. So for the church to place herself above the scriptures is actually for the church to place herself above God himself. And so right. the Puritans really wanted to understand this and say the preaching of the word really has to be the central thing because this is where God speaks to us. It's not the voice of man that's preaching. It's the voice of God as the scripture is faithfully preached. And that's something we definitely miss in our modern understandings of preaching. Yeah, there's almost something that Beaky's drawing out here that strikes me as anomalous in terms of our current perspective because I like how he emphasizes this idea of God's honor. So we've already talked about that preaching really should carry with it a sense of holy dread, that you're expounding on the scriptures themselves, that you are speaking out God's words. But this idea that there's even more than just that at stake, that you can besmirch God's honor exactly. through poor preaching. Right. That is a really unique idea. We're taking this emphasis to like a whole nother level, which you can start to understand then why they were so concerned that they did it rightly. Yeah. 
because it's not just a matter of, well, you might get facts wrong. You might lead people in the wrong direction. That would be bad enough. But to say that you have dishonored God is something altogether different. Yeah. So I love that like that is part of, I, I think what he does a good job of is explaining why the go- this was considered the golden age. It's not just because these, again, these guys were like, let's take this seriously. They saw that there was a certain type of responsibility that they had. And what was at stake here was nothing less than God's honor. Right. So to move from that then into like this idea for man's sake, I love that what Beaky emphasizes here is the Puritans saw preaching as the center of gravity because any kind of ungodly words do not contain power or nourishment. Right. And how much of preaching these days lacks real power and nourishment because when the preacher sometimes gets up and thinks that they have to create the mental hook, that they have to somehow make this entertaining, bring an appropriate amount of levity and bring some kind of sense of entertainment to this to captivate the attention of the audience, what they're actually doing is delivering to us like the physical equivalent of the Oreo cookie, which is super delicious but has actual no nutritional value. And I'm bringing that up as an example because my wife has just recently learned that she's lactose intolerant and somebody told her, oh, you know what you can eat is Oreo cookies because they have no lactose. And I was like, but what about the cream? So even the cream, (laughs) which seems like it should have some redeeming value, is totally empty. And and how many sometimes sermons, homilies, blog posts come from this perspective where they just contain ungodly words, not because they're blasphemous, but the ungodly words are not the words of scripture and therefore they contain neither power nor sustenance. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting because when I, I I run into this online a fair amount of the time, especially as I'm interacting with people who are trying to overcome um, the exclusive psalmody position, they'll sort of throw at the exclusive psalmody person. um, Well, you know, we don't just read the scriptures, we make commentary on them. And so we should also write our own songs. And and those are basically song form commentaries on the scriptures. And what that misses, um, and I'm not an exclusive psalmist, but I don't think that's a good argument because what that misses is something that he picks up on here is that it's not enough to just read the scriptures out loud. There's, there's, there's benefit in that. And the scriptures are uh, powerful in their own right. But there's actually a divine command in the scripture to explain and exposit the scripture. And I love this quote that he has here uh, from Thomas Cartwright. And he says, as the fire stirred gives more heat, so the word, as if it were blown by preaching, flames more in the hearers than when it is read. And that's, I mean, the Puritans, not only are they um, amazing, faithful biblical expositors, but who writes like that anymore? Yeah, exactly. And and so there's this image that the scriptures give us, right? We have it all throughout the scripture. There's, you know, Nehemiah um, has the word read or Ezra has the word read and everybody stands there uh, listening to the law being read. But what you see in that text is as the law is being read, there's all these Levites scattered throughout the crowd who are explaining what the law means to the people listening to the law, not, not translating, right? These people are hearing it read in a language they can understand, but they're giving the sense of the text. They're giving the meaning of the text. And so there's this divine command. It's not just a warrant. It's a divine command within the scriptures to faithfully exposit and expound the scriptures in a way that's directly applicable to the hearer, but is also still faithful to the, to the scripture themselves. So Beaky picks up on this, that in order for this to benefit men the way it ought, we have to have 
have faithful men who know the scriptures and can explain it and exposit it and apply it to their hearers in a way that not only carries the power and the force of the scripture, but that, as Cartwright says, blows that blows that coal into a flame in the heart of the hearer. And that's right. that's another thing that we're just missing. And, you know, our my pastor, your dad, he does such a good job of doing this. But there are so many churches where either the, the preaching is kind of this uh, devising of man's own own creation with with scripture kind of like sprinkled on top of it to give it a flavor of 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 scripture, almost like, you know, the chocolate in an Oreo cookie is not really chocolate, but it makes it taste right. like chocolate or that chocolate on the right. outside of a donut is actually a form of wax. It just makes it taste like chocolate. That's what most scripture references in many modern sermons do is they just give you this flavor of scripture without actually giving you the meat. And on the flip side, there's a lot of scriptures that never get beyond the exegesis of the scripture. They spend a lot of time talking about Greek verb tenses and, you know, historical context, and they never get to the point where they're actually explaining what the scripture says to you. And that's, that's what I like so much about Puritan preaching is it has that element, but it moves beyond that to the exposition and, and explanation and application of the scripture in a really organic way that I think is really, really helpful. I also had that Thomas Cartwright quote, I mean, noted because you should read this chapter. And by the way, we should say we're only in chapter eight. Yeah. So come along for the journey. You can still catch up. We're doing just once one chapter a month. But even if you want to jump into this, there's certainly you can jump into these chapters without having to read anything that was prior to them. This is not like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You can just jump right in and actually understand most of what's yeah. going on. And so I'd encourage you to do that because there's this chapter among many of the other ones doesn't it just have so many amazing quotes because he's quoting from all these amazing Puritans. And I, I kind of want to say this because I was really challenged by this and want to throw this out to you. And I think to all, all our other listeners, and it's this idea, we read these phrases and we're like, what an amazing turn of phrase that Cartwright expresses here. Yeah. And yeah, I think what we're seeing is not that they were like particular articulate or well-spoken. That's partly true. But I think what we're seeing is what Beaky is trying to drive us towards. And that is these men love the Bible yep. and their expression of loving the Bible was spending time in the scriptures. And as they became so familiar with the scriptures, as they became so enamored with Christ himself, their language by extension and appropriately became poetic. Yeah. And so what you see here in all their writings is just a natural outworking. It's real growth. It's real maturity. It's not manufactured emotionalism. It's not manufactured poetic skill or ability. What you're seeing is this is the way they want to express it. And so the challenge comes in this. I think we should all try to speak this way because it shows that if we're really processing the scriptures, really getting into the depth of the stream of God's love and life in by reading his word for us, the full counsel, then when we met, meditate on it and metabolize with it, I think our language starts to move in this direction. Yeah. And so it's kind of an encouragement to say, let's not all pray and talk in the same cliches anymore. Like, let's think about what God is saying in the scriptures yeah. and then let us use our own words to recapitulate that, to express that. And I think when we do that in a meaningful and a serious way, we'll end up with saying things like, as the fire stirreth and giveth more heat, so the word, as it were, blown by preaching, flameth more in the hearers. Like yeah. another good book I, I think about recently in reading this chapter was, if you've ever read any of Spurgeon's prayers, the, here's a man that was praying out of like sheer poetic license because th these were the words that he, the only words that he had to express. Right. So like when he prays things like, God, give us a mighty groundswell of passion for Jesus Christ. Yeah. 
that's a man who is well acquainted with the scriptures and has been transformed by them and so speaks in this way. Yeah. So it's funny to me that people will try to craft their messages or preaching or their prayers in such a way as to sound super formal, to sound really heavy and weighty. And really, the way to do that is just to immerse yourself in God's word. And I think by extension, when we really are processing that, we will be moved to speak in this way. And I think we should be challenging ourselves to speak in that way, to move beyond what is cliche. Yeah. The other thing that I think is demonstrated in Puritans to kind of tie in with that is, you know, I love entertainment and I went on like a 20 minute diatribe about Marvel Cinematic Universe and how great it is. But we also are really lazy people in a lot of different ways. And, yes, you know, sure. the, the, the shift from, um, primarily word-based entertainment to primarily, um, image-based entertainment has not done well for our, uh, our ability to speak and think in these sort of exalted, clear ways. I mean, when, when you read, when you write something, um, you have to be careful not to just use the same 70 words over and over again. Like you have to be intentional right. to find synonyms and ways to say things that are clever, because if you're just repeating yourself in the same words over and over again, in the same ways over and over again, people lose interest and they stop reading. So you have to engage them by choosing your words carefully. When you're doing a video or even a, a podcast, which is is a little closer to writing something, um, you have to be intentional about time, about uh, the way something sounds, about the way something looks, but you don't have to be as intentional about the words you're using because you can grab their attention with other things. And so the Puritans, they were students of the word in, you know, capital W word scripture, but they were also students of words in terms of a mastery of, of the classics, a mastery of um, the writing of the day, the scientific writing of the day, right? Jonathan Edwards published a, a ton of work on like umbrella spiders and things like that. Um, so we see that in this era, they were men who studied hard and not just the scriptures. And so when you have a good grasp on other areas of discipline, you know, reading the classics, reading modern literature, reading the newspaper, when you have a, a wider range than just, you know, just the Bible and just theology books, right. you're more likely to be able to communicate effectively. And the Puritans, he doesn't really talk about in this, in this uh, chapter, but the Puritans really believed they should be students of everything, not just of the scripture. Obviously the exactly. scripture theology was the queen of the sciences, but they believed that properly understanding the other disciplines allowed them to communicate God's word in a more effective way. Yeah, that's a great point. And I love that about them because there was this holistic sense that because God has created this world, there's so many things worth knowing and worth knowing well. And I love that he emphasizes that when they were coming to preparing for preaching, they loved that part too. So I think there are a lot of preachers that love preaching. Yeah. And yet you have the Puritans, by example, who loved, in addition to preaching, preparing for preaching. Yeah. They, they may actually spent long hours just pouring over the meaning of the text. And that made them both expository and didactic. Yeah. And so when he goes into this whole section about the power of preaching, one of the things that immediately drew me in because I think there's value in this, and especially in the Reformed tradition, was this idea that the mind is the palace of faith. Like, what a beautiful expression just in those words there. This idea that Puritan preaching addressed the mind with clarity, and preaching was directed to people as rational beings. It follows in this idea of the Apostle Paul saying, you reason for yourself. You are rational people. And so I think this just makes so much sense, because in every other area of life, 
we rationally understand the connection between the mind and the heart. So that when the Apostle Paul expressed that by saying, be renewed, not by your feelings, not by how you understand what is the center of your heart, but by the transformation of your mind. You know, I think of this example of, you know, the Louvre Museum in Paris um, had this idea where they wanted to stop people from taking pictures, flash photography, when that was more popular, of the paintings there. And so they just put up signs that said, like, please do not take flash photography of the images. And the the problem was nobody obeyed the signs, right. like because once you're there and you're like, I'll never be here again. I want to take I want to take all these images home with me. Uh, you have all these lovers of art that are there, and they're just like, I want to take these images. I'm going to take a picture, of course. Like, who cares? It's just me. So what they discovered, of course, is they changed the wording. They changed the emphasis of the warning such to appeal so that there was a connection between heart and mind. So they changed the signs to say, please don't take flash photography of the paintings. Over time, it reduces and decomposes all of these wonderful images. And of course, what happened is everybody stopped taking pictures. Like it was just like that. And so here we have like the Puritans understanding that knowledge is the soil in which the spirit plants regeneration. And Beeky uses these words to kind of wrap up that idea. He says on page 151, mindless Christianity fosters a spineless Christianity. That's amazingly, that's a great encapsulation of that. So true, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, theologically, as I think about this, um, I'm sure that I got this from Michael Horton, but I can't place exactly where, uh, where I got it from him. You know, Christianity is a religion which more or less affirms, right? John 1, more or less affirms that the foundational reality of the universe, right? The foundational element of creation, um, all things that are not God, is verbal, right? Even in Genesis 1, right. God creates the world by speaking, right? So so it's not um, we as sensory creatures, right? We're, we're driven in a lot of ways by our external, our external senses. Um, we lose sight of the fact that the reality of, of the universe is foundationally verbal. Um, and that's why for most people, when you think about something, you think in words, right? You think in words more so than in in images. Most people have to intentionally conjure an image in their head. But when you're just recapping your day, you're usually thinking through in terms of words. And so the Puritans understood this <clears throat> in a way that I don't think we do. And, you know, this this um, to tie into the Michael Horton point, he makes the point that the diff- one of the primary differences in the Reformation between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants was this return to a word-based faith versus a sight or a sensory-based faith. Yes. Right? So the, right. the, the Christians in the Middle Ages, the average uh, hoi polloi Christian was... Uh, was primarily receiving the gospel through bells and smells, right? They, they had icons that told them the story of the gospel. They had incense, which engaged them emotionally and mentally. There was sounds, there was all these different things, but the, the Protestants engaged religion by sermons. They engaged religions by the scriptures. They engaged religions by the renewing of their mind in this verbal sense. And you know, this, 
sometimes the question is asked, well, what was it about the Reformation? What was it about Reformed Christianity that led to this idea that we shouldn't make pictures of God? Because it really is unique in the Reformed tradition. Um, it, once you get out of like the second or third century of Christianity, it's really unique in the Reformed world to have this perspective where we can't make any images of God. We can't do it. We shouldn't right. do it. We can't do it. This applies to Jesus. We just shouldn't do it. And the reality is that God commanded us to worship in spirit and truth rationally with our minds and our minds predominantly are verbal entities. So when we worship, we don't worship according to carnal senses, like our, our eyes and our, our nose and our ears in terms of the, the audible senses. We worship according to the spirit and the truth rationally according to word. So it's it's really important when you're studying the Puritans. This is why preaching became such a huge thing for them because it was about it was about verbally proclaiming the word of God which then translated into the renewal of the minds of those listening. And then they published these sermons because the word is powerful, whether it's spoken or written. It's not the presentation of the word that's powerful. It's the word and not right. just the word of the scripture, but the words themselves as verbal uh, units are powerful in the way that they're put together and presented. So they published their sermons, they published theological treatises, they kind of invaded the schools and reshaped philosophically how we thought about the universe in this sort of verbal sense in ways that was really powerful and really did shape the course of Reformed Christianity. Um, you know, Calvin was definitely about the word and about words, but even more so than Calvin or Knox, the Puritans really drove even further to this word-based religion that uh, than some of the early reformers did. And that's, I think, among some of the strongest arguments in understanding the second commandment to be a violation also against images of Jesus himself, because the Puritans were very outspoken in exactly the manner that you just suggested there. And that was to understand that we are to apprehend this by way of a faith that doesn't come through sight. And yet at the same time, how good of God to give us words and language, which is almost the next best thing, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, because we think of words as like particularly substantial, because like you said, we tend to be verbal processors. When you think that you need to tell somebody something, when you need to give a presentation, immediately the process of conjuring that in your mind goes to the expression and it goes to that expression represented in words. Right. What words am I going to use? What words express how I feel? What words will communicate to something to somebody else, something that's clearly manifest as an idea in my mind. And so they do carry some sense of weight, but they're certainly, I would say in like a hierarchy, more substantial than uh, feelings or expressions through the vision in that sense. And so here we have the Puritans really kind of latching onto that. And, you know, I think what's, I kind of want to throw out for your thoughts as we somewhat have to wrap up this conversation, unfortunately, because we could talk for hours, I think, about this, yeah. is the taxonomy of preaching that's represented in the example of the Puritans, I think by no means must stay in this historical realm. In other words, I think that we can bring this type of preaching back. And I think that that first starts with the lay people, actually, yeah. and how they approach the scriptures and how they come prepared or perhaps with their lack of preparedness to the Lord's day. Like what say you about that? Yeah. I mean, we've commented before that just being in the scriptures on a daily basis will prepare you to be a better receiver of a sermon because you, you will see things, you'll hear things in the sermon. 
you'll hear connections that your pastor is making or or you'll hear connections your pastor isn't making with the scripture that give you a more robust understanding of what they're trying to communicate to you. And this is this is um, a good transition to kind of the last part of the uh, the chapter here is one of the elements that is Puritan preaching is famous for. It's literally called the Puritan plain style of preaching is that yes. this this understanding of words being powerful should not and does not translate to a um, a complex, difficult way of preaching. It's not about beautifully crafted sentences or about uh, very high flying, you know, highfalutin rhetoric or anything like that. It's about it's about the simplicity of clearly articulating what God has communicated in his word. And this is, um, this isn't a quote by a Puritan, but it's a quote by someone commenting on the Puritans named Miller McClure. And he says, for the Puritans, the sermon is not just hinged to the scripture. It quite literally exists inside the word of God. The text is not in the sermon, but the sermon is in the text. Put summarily, listening to a sermon is being in the Bible. So when, when we talk right. about being in the word, we think about that in terms of just like a superficial fr- turn of phrase that that is just a circumlocution for saying, read the Bible, right? I was really in the word means I spent time reading the scripture. But when we talk about being in the word in this sense, it really is about immersing yourself in the scriptures, letting the scriptures become all encompassing in your life. And the sermon on the Lord's day, what more... What better example of that can you have? But to stop everything in your life, you stop everything in your life. You stop your job. You, in a certain way, you stop your family. You stop the concerns of your life. You stop your meals. You stop everything. And you go and you sit in a place where someone explains the scriptures to you. That's, that's a sermon. So everything in your world stops in order for you to be fully immersed in that moment in the word of God in the word of God. And that's why it's so important as Christians that we don't allow ourselves to become distracted, right? If you are a note taker and your notes are distracting you, stop being a note taker. If you read your Bible on your tablet and your notifications are distracting you and you can't turn them off or you won't turn them off, stop bringing your tablet, right? If having a paper Bible, this is going to sound crazy. If having a paper Bible in front of you is distracting because you find yourself flipping to other references as the preacher's going and you miss things, stop bringing your Bible, right? I know that sounds stop strange, it. but it's important for us when we go into the into the Lord's Day service to allow ourselves to be fully immersed in the Word without distractions. Everything should stop. And if it doesn't stop, right. then you're not really getting what God has for you in the, in the preaching of the Word. Right. Yeah, this is why having the phrase or the word because we're all about words in this episode, puritanical levied against you is not necessarily pejorative in my mind, because to say something is puritanical is not to say that it's legalistic. It is to say that it is focused. And I think that's what we're really going back to here is as lay people, the best thing that we can do is come with this high expectation from our preachers that we're going to be in the word by way of their preaching. And, but that also means that we are prepared to engage in that kind of behavior ourselves, that we are, 
ready and willing. And that doesn't just happen on Sunday morning. It happens in our preparation throughout the week. But we need to be the kind of people that take this stuff seriously. I think we could usher in a new golden age of preaching that this isn't something that belongs just in historicity. It's something that can be and should be contemporary, but it must begin with us. It doesn't begin with just saying to our pastors, would you preach us better? Yeah. Would you come like more prepared? Because the fact of the matter is so many of them are preaching what they think we want to hear. That's its own problem. Yeah. But if we were so much saying like we need the meat and not the Oreo cookie, then, then we'd be getting something different in a sense. And so I think that sometimes it's easy for even for you and I to just say, well, look at how everybody is doing this super poorly without saying how well am I really being or doing at following this example of when I come to the scriptures, when I come to the Lord's day and I'm ready for it to hear the message that I, I want it to be exegetical and expositional, that I'm ready for it to be di- doctrinal and didactic, that I'm ready for it to be obligatory, that I need to be concerned with, I just don't want to hear what's happening in God's scriptures, but that the best part of it is what I'm going to use it for and that I'm ready to put it into use yeah. and I'm hungering and thirsting, not just for what is abstract, but for what is practical for me as a practitioner of godly living. And so I, w- I want to bring it back. I, I don't have any good answers except to, to say that it must begin with me and that if you have this kind of pastor that is following this example, that the best thing that you can do, and in fact, the, the challenge I would give once again is before you do anything else in your day, if you're listening to this, and if you're listening to it in a place where you can pause it and stop and do this, do it now, would you please reach out to your pastor and give them a word of encouragement yeah. for this type of preaching? Yeah, and you know, maybe one last thought too. I think a lot of times in the modern church, we lose sight of what kind of preaching is actually good for us. So we we tend yes. to think like, yeah, the preaching should be applicable. And we think that what that means is it shouldn't be doctrinal. We, we think of doctrine right. and application as at odds with each other. And they really aren't. I mean, you and I, I think like our whole podcast is predicated on the idea that um, theology actually matters. Like theology actually makes a difference in your life. Not, not in, in the abstract t-shirt slogan, slogan sense, but what you think about God and how you believe God interacts with the world and how you believe he saves people and desires to save people really does change how you live. And so um, I'm not finding the quote right off the top of my head, but one of the things that, one of the points he makes in this chapter is um, the Puritans believed that the, the body of divinity, the systematic theology that they held was like a doctor's uh, course in anatomy. They were able to diagnose the spiritual ills of their congregation. And again, isn't this just a beautiful turn of phrase? They were able to diagnose the spiritual ills of their congregation because they had a crisp model of spiritual anatomy in the practice of systematic theology. So when you read, whether it's a Puritan or whether you read some of these um, Second Reformation Dutch readers like Van Maastricht, they talk about theology as a body of divinity and they talk about it in a way that it's immensely practical because they're able to serve their congregations by knowing and preaching systematic theology. So in the course of encouraging your pastor, here's the deal. I've never met a reformed minister of any nature who didn't love systematic theology. They, they, we, they love it. Like they love systematic right. theology. They love, they love that discipline. It's very rare for somebody who's a ref, like a bona fide reformed minister to not love systematic theology. But 
I don't remember the last time I heard a really good crisp doctrinal sermon. We get them once in a while here where, you know, we'll take a sermon that's really about the Trinity or something like that. But for the most part, systematic theology is not preached from the pulpit. And I used to think that that was a good thing. But the more I'm reading these Puritans and these second wave Dutch reformers, I'm starting to believe that that's not a good thing. Because so many people who sit in the pews don't have a clue what is going on in the world of right. systematic theology. They have no idea what what a deviation in this area does to this part of theology. And so the problem with that is that when, you know, when Johnny comes home from college and he's talking about this brand new, amazing way to reconcile God's sovereignty with human freedom, and he's been listening to William Lane Craig, nobody recognizes that that's fundamentally a different concept of who God is. Because it just sounds like a slightly different understanding of how God creates. But what it really does is it changes the very nature of who God is. And because the right. church has gotten away from this practice of preaching systematic theology and preaching through the catechisms, right? That's part of why the Reformed tradition has this tradition of preaching through the catechisms, typically on the second Sunday service, because they want to preach the whole body of divinity that they have. So it's important as you as you encourage your pastor, let him know not only would it be okay for him to preach doctrinal sermons, but that you want him to preach doctrinal sermons. So you think it would be good yes. for the health of the church to preach doctrinal sermons. It's not that they need permission, right but sometimes they need to hear that they're not the only person that thinks that. Right on. I'm glad you brought that up. That quote actually in this chapter is on page 153. And I noted it as well because it's actually Sinclair Ferguson commenting yeah. on the Puritans where he says, theology was to the pastor what knowledge of anatomy is to the physician. Yeah. And that's a great way to end this because that's exactly true. And I kind of want to affirm Sinclair Ferguson as well in saying, I don't want to sound like overly myopic or overly discouraging here. There is, I think, plenty of preaching that's happening in this tradition, and it's alive and well in some places. And men like Sinclair Ferguson, Ian Hamilton, Alistair Begg, these are great. My father, these are great examples of men who love to prepare for preaching yeah. and then love to preach what they prepared. And so look up these guys, listen to them, and encourage your pastors to do the same. Yeah. You know, I think I just figured something out, Jesse. If, What's that? if systematic theology is to the theologian as uh, anatomy book is to a doctor, then maybe we really are one of the top 50 healthcare podcasts on the internet. <laughs> maybe they knew something we don't. Maybe they maybe they were just like a couple chapters ahead of us in Beaky's book. Uh, they were very, very prescient. You know what's great about this is <laughs> that one email know. has become like a recurring theme in our podcasting. I know. It's like the most fruitful spam email I've ever gotten. It's amazing. But there's something so wonderful even about that because, again, we're talking about like the seriousness of preaching and the seriousness of God's scriptures. And it just reminds me of how sometimes I do not take it all that yeah. seriously or I could be very lackadaisical about it, even in a way that's so subtle that I fail to even recognize it. And, of course, you would never go to a doctor that wasn't trained in basic anatomy. Yeah. And you'd not only know right away they weren't trained, but you would cease to trust any kind of judgment that they had right. about your condition. Yeah. And when you go to a doctor, you've got a condition that's serious. And so it just reminds me that we should expect that our pastors should be well-versed in theology. And we, by extension, ought to e expect the same thing in our own lives because it's like having these tools, like a compass, for instance, and you're trying to sail a ship and thinking, well, you know, like once I get out here, I'll figure it out. I should be able to find my direction generally. 
when your compass is off even slightly, then it means that your entire journey by extension in a magnitude that is multiple fold is going to be so far off just because of some simple, small misdirection in the instrument yeah. that you're using that seems like it might be very small. Yeah. So you are right. We need to get on that and we need to start by having good pastors and teachers that are doing it and then also take responsibility for our own education and get serious about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I think that this has been the most appropriate sentipentacast that we ever could have had. <laughs> sentipentacast. So, so much, so many crazy words in this. I mean, this, this definitely, of all the, the podcasts we've done so far, it is 150. I mean, this has been a true rip snorter. There's no doubt about this it. This has been a humdinger, Jesse. This has been a, <laughs> a major everybody... crackajack podcast. <laughs> I love Crackajack. <laughs> Listen, I'm just going to tell you right now, for anybody who's listening to this that uh, actually knows me and interacts with me on a regular basis, be prepared for Crackajack because that's come, <laughs> about to come at you hard because I'm going to be using it. that all over the place. You know, This is why, again, go download the OED app for your phone so you can look up half of the words that we've just used in this podcast. <laughs> and if you do, apparently you can treat it like uh, like a free trial of a like an internet service, because if you ignore it long enough, they're like, please buy me. We'll give you money off. Please yes. buy me. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's worth it. Like even there, you can have it like send you notifications for word of the day. But because it is the Oxford English version, all of the pronunciations, or at least most of the ones that I've messed with are all using like the English or British accent. So it's pretty killer. So does it say aluminium? Actually, I knew you were going to ask me that when I started to say this, and I have no idea. So I'll have to look that up. It's funny. I had a, a English, um, a British chemistry professor in high school, and he would always, you know, every time we would come to something with aluminum, he'd, he'd make the same joke, and he would go, he'd go aluminium or aluminum, as you Americans would say. <laughs> and then one day, some kid in the back was like, raised his hand, and he's like, "Yes, Jeffrey," and he's like, "Where's the second I come from?" <laughs> and it was like he had, he was like I I don't know there's no second eye. It was really funny. He was just was like I mean, totally shut down. I do appreciate that our English brothers and sisters pronounce H E R B correctly because we tend to do a lot of herb action where I do appreciate a good herb. Yeah. I also like the way they say they say controversy. Contra Yeah, con that's pretty good. That's pretty good as well. Or uh, oregano. Isaiah. That's also pretty good. <laughs> let's just let's just end the podcast by saying every word we can think of that the British pronounce differently. That's, that has a different pronunciation. <laughs> well, Jesse, until next time, <sighs> until the next Centipentacast. No, no, we're going to podcast before 150 again. Until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.